want to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. We're going to read a portion of Scripture there in just a moment. Proverbs chapter 4. It's good to see everyone out. We have a few visitors with, with us. We're delighted that you're here. We are honored by your presence. and We ask that you stick around for a few moments after the services that we might get to talk to you, get to know you, or just be able to talk to you a little bit more. Uh, after a while of seeing you, it's good to have everyone and the number that we have out this morning. Um, if I could, I'd like to share with you a story that I thought was somewhat humorous. Well, I thought it was really humorous. Uh, but it was just about a father and a son. And the father had given his son a chore to do. And the son said he was going to get around to it. And he just kept on, you know postponing he kept on procrastinating and every time his father would talk about it he says you know why why is it that you're not taking out the trash and his son kept saying I just I really don't want to but I'll get it done I'll get it done and after a full day of doing this you might wonder how how did it even get to a full day without an altercation occurring but after a full day of this happening the father finally said uh son have you taken out the trash yet and the child was turning around about to say, I just really don't want to, but I'll get it done later. And he saw the switch in his father's hand and he said, I want to, I want to. <laughs> and uh, I think that story's funny, but I think it kind of portrays the way humanity tends to be uh, often. There are people today who no matter how often you bring up the gospel, they just simply won't have it. Or they may say something kind of like the child, I just, I really don't want, I really don't want to hear it. I really don't care about what it has to say. Maybe later. There are even Christians who hear the word and attend every worship service, yet what ends up happening is they prove themselves to be people who are still, instead of liberated from sinful lifestyles, instead of liberated from a carnal mindset, they're still trapped in that. And sometimes we wonder what the main problem is. Why is this such an issue across the board from Christians to unbelievers alike? How can this be so difficult when the answer is so simple and right in front of our face like the child? Just do it. But I think ultimately it stems from what I'd like to call this morning a heart problem. In Proverbs chapter 4, in verse 23, the proverb writer says, Then you will walk in your way securely, and your, or that, that's chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 4, in verse 23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Constantly, the Bible talks about how we need to guard our hearts and how we need to keep watch over them and how we need to make sure that no enticing thought, no sinful temptation uh, comes in and tries to lead us in a way that God says we cannot go, ultimately a way that leads to death and destruction. And so when we look around and we see people, when the word is so clear in front of them, the answer couldn't be any clearer. We wonder, why is this a problem? It's because it's not a failure of the word. It's a failure on the person's part. It's a failure of their heart. It is because of a major heart problem. So that's what I want to look at for a few moments this morning. And just as we think about how we're going to define what this heart problem is, I want to look at just a few examples from the very beginning. And, and as we talk about this notion of a heart problem, what, what, we, what I mean is it is people who know God's word, who know what God has said. They've heard his command clearly, but they just lack a desire to do it at the moment. And it could be temporarily, it could be just across the board in their lives. But the first instance that I want to look at is Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. You may find this somewhat familiar because it's, it's really a very prominent story, especially during the days of the United Kingdom. Uh, Saul 
earlier it had an L at the end of that. Apparently the font grew as, as this got transferred on the Google Drive, but that is Saul, not Saul. Um, but in Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have in the first few verses there the very clear commandment. God says, you go to Amalek and you wipe them out. He says, you utterly devote everything to destruction. And in fact, you're going to kill the king. You're not going to spare anything. Everything is to be destroyed. So God gives a command, and you can read through that. It is very clear. It's not vague. And so as you look at that, you think, all right, that seems pretty, pretty simple. Saul just goes in. He destroys everything. But then you see the problem pretty much immediately in 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, in verse 7 beginning. It says, But Saul and the people spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So there's the problem. God tells him to utterly destroy everything. Saul decides, I'm not going to destroy everything. I'll destroy some, but I'm not going to destroy everything. What's interesting, though, is Saul's response when Samuel the prophet comes to him and tries to say, hey, look at what you have done. What, why, what, what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? Why is it that things are, have not been done the way God has prescribed? And constantly look at what Saul says, beginning in verse 13. He says, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. Pretty interesting. But you go further past that in verse 15. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, from the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. And so from the very beginning, what he says is, I've done the command of the Lord. Samuel says, okay, why do I hear the sheep? And he says, oh, well, yeah, I mean, the, the people spared them, and yes, we were going to devote them to the Lord. But look, I've utterly destroyed everything else. So kind of talking about a little bit of partial obedience there. Skip down to verse 20. After they continue to talk about this, it says that Samuel, uh, Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So he doubles down constantly. You think after the first rebuke he might say, you're right. But no, it takes a few instances where Samuel says, you, you didn't, you didn't do what God told you. In fact, God has come to me last night and told me that you disobeyed him. And, but, but what is Saul trying to say over and over? But I did obey the Lord. I did exactly what he told me. No, you didn't. And isn't that a common cry today when we are having a Bible study with somebody and we just come to a very clear portion of scripture? Have you done this? Well, I mean, I've done this. I mean, did it, did it look the way, did it, does it look the way it was described in God's pattern? I mean, no, but, I, but I've done this, I've done this. I obeyed God. Did we really? Look in verse 24, because this is very telling. Verse 24, it says that Saul said to Samuel, after being rebuked again, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, there's something to be said about Saul's supposed to be a leader, and yet he's blaming everybody else but himself, trying to shift the blame to the people that he's the king of. But we'll put that aside for a moment. Let me just ask, from, from your perspective, you, you can read the words again. Does it seem unclear what God get, the commandment that God gave Saul? No, just like in Genesis chapter 3, Eve understood the command that God gave, gave her, and it was so well understood that she even seems to portray that or relay that information to Adam, and even he understands it. And it's interesting that uh, you have Saul, the king of the people, who tries to 
shift the blame and tries to act like, oh, uh, well, I, I, I mean, I've, I've done the will of the Lord. I've completely obeyed him, even though I've spared Agag. God said to kill him. This was not a sudden realization that Saul had. In fact, what I think we see here is, is what people tend to do when they're caught red-handed. What are we trying? We're just trying to find a way out. That's what Saul was trying to do. He knew the whole time that he was disobeying God. In fact, in verse 24, he makes it so clear. The reason I did this is because I feared the people. That's the reason I did it. The whole, the whole time he knew that, but he didn't want to admit it. But did Saul know? He knew exactly what he was doing. Why did he not do what God told him? It's because of a heart problem. He wasn't willing to do what God said. He, does, he had a lack of a desire for God and his will. But not only was Saul, I want to look at David as well. David in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12, another very familiar passage where David sins with Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, kills Uriah the Hittite, her, her rightful husband. And we look at this man and we think this is, this is a man that God has said is righteous. This is a man who is righteous in the sight of God. And in fact, he is going to be held up as a pattern for the rest of the kings of Israel and Judah. He walked in the steps of his father, or he did not, deciding whether it's a good king or a bad king. He's propped up by God himself as a righteous man. And so it's very uncharacteristic when you get to this passage of Scripture and you see that David very clearly sins against God. I mean, does David strike you as the kind of man who, just, who, who wouldn't know God's law on this? Do you think David didn't know that adultery was wrong? Do you think that David didn't know that murder was wrong? And, and those are obvious answers, but I would go a step further. Not just that, but do you think that he just didn't know in the moment? And, oh, all of a sudden, I, I just didn't realize that at the time. Go over to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, please. Psalm 32. It's a, much like Psalm 51 where David is speaking about his sin against God and how he has uh, hurt Bathsheba and Uriah. But in Psalm 32, I like the way he puts it here because it really clearly answers that question of maybe he just didn't know in the moment. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 3. Psalm 32 in verse 3. If I can ever turn there, my hands are so dry for some reason this morning. Psalm 32. There we go. Just had to get a little slide on there. Psalm 32 in verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, what did he feel? My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with fever heat of summer. So let me ask you again. Did David not know better at the time? He knew better all along. He was a righteous man. He truly was. The problem was that David did not know. It was that in this moment he had a serious heart problem. At this moment, temporary as it was, he did not want to do what God had told him to do, what God expected of him. The last example I want to look at is the rich young ruler that we actually kind of mentioned today in the Bible class. If you go over to Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, I'd just like to read that very quickly. Matthew 19 and verse 16, it says, Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? 
Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Mark makes it even more clear. He was saddened because he was one who uh, owned much more property. I like the way Mark puts it because it just really defines just how deep, deeply enslaved he was to these possessions. But I will just say, here's one thing for the rich young ruler. He was genuinely curious. And I think he asked a genuine and good question. It's the best question anybody can ask. What must I do? That is the question of the Bible. But even though he started that way, how did he leave this scene? When you, when you see how he leaves and, uh, the, the, this, this moment, what is his relationship with God? Does it look like it's a good spot or is it in a bad spot? When he left that scene, he was still separated from God. Why? Was it because he just couldn't know? He was given the clearest answer possible. It was that he did not want to. He had a heart problem. He would not accept what the answer was. And so as we go throughout the application, I just want to note as all of these examples, and we could look at several more, but from Saul to David to the rich young ruler, when we talk about this heart problem, it is the notion that even though we know God's word, we don't want to follow it for some reason or another, temporarily or permanently, for an extended period of time. It does not matter. We know God's word. At least we should if we're Christians. Christians know that lying is a sin. And yet you still have Christians who do it a lot of times. Christians know that pornography is a sin. And yet there are many that are captivated by it. People know that divorce is wrong. And yet you see even Christians, and it's terrible every time this happens, but you see even Christians doing it with, with no problem whatsoever. Every time this is done, it's not because Christians don't understand. It's because of a heart issue. And we really, need to, we really need to figure out a way to root this out of our lives. Because if we, like the rich young ruler, like Saul overall, and like David, even in just a moment, it can have drastic impact on our lives. And in fact, it can have a drastic impact on our eternal salvation, whether we have it or not. So I just want to look at a few ways that we can locate this issue. Do we have this problem in our own lives? Maybe we have a hard time figuring out whether we do or not. Here's just a few things. There are four things that I'm going to put up here. And I think that these are signs that locate or reveal this, this problem that we have, this disease that we may have. In the first instance, I just want to mention the notion of being dissatisfied. Someone who is dissatisfied with God's will and dissatisfied with Christian living. If you would turn to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. I think that this is a really good passage to describe uh, what I mean by this. People that are dissatisfied with the way that God expects them to live. Numbers 22 is interesting because Balaam is a man who's not a Jew. He's actually a Gentile. And he is a Gentile that's given special privilege because God actually comes and speaks to him. Uh, that is, you know, very unlike the way he does with, with anyone other than the Jews. But he actually comes and speaks to Balaam because Balak and, and uh, the sons of Midian, they are trying to come to Israel. They're trying to curse Israel. They know that Israel has defeated Egypt, really, that their God has defeated Egypt. And they're just trying to figure out a way to curse the people because they're afraid of them. And so they try to get Balaam to curse God's people for them. And God comes and he tells him exactly what to do. Send them away. These people are my people. They will not be cursed. And so he does. 
But then they come back and Balak says, don't let anything, don't let anything keep you from coming to me. And I think he's almost saying, anything that you want, I'll give. Balaam had already been given God's will. He had already been given God's word on the matter. He had his answer. You send these people away. But did Balaam send them away that second time? In fact, instead of sending them away in verse 18, It says, he replied to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. And would that it be that it just ended here, and he said, get out of here. You have no place in my home. Rather, in verse 19, now please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. And so God says to Balaam, in verse 20, if the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, you shall do. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. Now, if, once you've read this full story, you can, if you're honest with the text, you cannot come away from this thinking, oh, well, God gave him the green light, so it's all good for him. <laughs> he literally sends an angel in the way to show, look at what you're doing. You knew all along, this is not what I said to do. You knew all along that you were going beyond my answer, beyond my will. But Balaam was not satisfied with that. Instead, he he comes back and says, literally, what else God might say on the matter? And so someone who's dissatisfied with God's will and living in his way, this is someone who is continually pushing against the boundary of God's word. Someone who's never satisfied with it. And it sounds just like Balaam. Let's see what else we might find on the matter. This happens, I'm telling you, it may happen a lot more than most people think. But this happens so often with authority. I just, I, I don't really like the way we interpret scripture. I don't really like the way we look at the commands of God. I don't like how we look at how we are supposed to organize the church. I don't like how we look at the way the function of the church is to be. And so maybe we need to look more into this. And a lot of times when you read articles by men who are wolves in sheep's clothing, it starts this way. It doesn't start with, all right, this is, what, this is how it is, and this is how we need to be, and they're trying to change it from the very beginning. What they start with is, you know what, I... I I just want to propose something to you. Let me, let me, I don't want to see how you feel about this. That's how the, it always starts. And then it goes into the rest of the article, and then it comes up that they are just trying to completely reestablish how we, how we establish authority and God's authority. And this is a serious problem. This is someone who is always looking for loopholes, kind of like Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Hey, hey, I obeyed God for the most part. Is that a loophole? What's going to happen when we go before God and we've obeyed him for the most part? What happens when he just asks the very simple question, did you obey me? Are we still going to be able to say, oh, yeah, I did. I mean, kind of. It's a yes or no. Saul did not obey God. And the person who is dissatisfied with his will for them and and the way that we are supposed to live this is a person who, like Balaam is going, and like Saul, is going to be looking for loopholes, going to constantly be pushing against the boundary of God's word. The symptom of a heart, this is a grave symptom of a heart problem. They want something else more than God. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 15, it's interesting because the New Testament gives us even more context about the issues of Balaam. In 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 15, speaking of men who are false teachers, speaking of men who are going astray from God's word and distorting God's grace, it says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Was it because Balaam did not know what God had said? No, he knew very clearly. And in several instances, in fact, 
It was that he did not want it. It was a heart problem. He wanted something else more than God. Does, does that define me? Am I dissatisfied with God's will and dissatisfied with the Christian life that I'm supposed to be living? Look at the end of Balaam. But another symptom I think that we can look at is an undedicated heart. Someone who's unresolved. Someone who knows God's word, but it's not enough to move them. Does that define me? When I hear the Bible spoken, when I hear it taught, when I hear sound doctrine, is it something that just kind of falls on deaf ears? Is it something that I'm just kind of apathetic about? Or is it something that instills great resolve in me? You know, when, when you think about the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, he had an undedicated heart. That was his problem. He, he wanted eternal salvation, but he didn't want it enough. And when he heard the answer that Christ gave, instead of joyfully receiving that and joyfully applying it to his life, he walks away sorrowful. Why? Because he's not resolved in God's word, really. And it's interesting that he says, hey, I've kept all of these commandments. I, I, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. That sounds a bit presumptuous. But he says, I've kept everything, but one thing you still lack, he was not willing to let it all go. That's someone who's unresolved and undedicated. You know, it makes me think about someone who's having issues, uh, I mean, physical issues with, with illness or, or issues with their body, and they go to the doctor, and they, they, they get you know, all the tests done, and after that visit, the doctor just tells them, hey, listen, you can fix all of this, but you're going to have to change your diet and you're going to have to change your daily activities. You're going to have to start exercising. I wonder how frustrating it is for those doctors who hear people come in so frantically like, I, I, something's wrong, something's wrong. And then when they give them the answer, they say, oh, well, that's not really what I wanted to hear. Is there anything else we could do? This, this is the best option you have. This is the answer, and it's really not that hard to comprehend. But what is it? The, the people just don't want to do it. He, just like the rich young ruler, they walk away sorrowful. But guess what? He still and will remain at greater risk because he walked away separated from God. And just like that person who walks away from the doctor's office saying, I don't really want to hear that. They walk away unwilling to change. They're walking away at greater risk to themselves. Is that describing me? Over in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, before we get to the parable of the Good Samaritan, that we, and we don't have enough time to go through that, but I just want to focus on the, the few sentences before Jesus gets into that parable. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. As a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this was a good question. Again, remember what we said about Matthew 19. Now, Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Is it ambiguous? Is it vague? Is it confusing? No. And in fact, you, you can tell this, that even the lawyer wasn't confused by it because it says that he was wishing to justify himself. So what does he do? He tries to test Jesus further. Okay, so who is my neighbor? What does Jesus say? <laughs> well, just be a neighbor. And I think it's interesting because people tend to come to the scriptures in the same way. The lawyer knew the answer to both questions. He knew already. He just didn't want to accept it. He said he wanted eternal life, but what does he prove by his actions? Not that bad. I want a relationship with God, but I don't want it that bad to get rid of this addiction that I have. I want to have salvation, but I don't want it, I don't want it that bad because I'm not willing to forsake and abandon everything that he says I have to abandon. That's what people show. I just don't want it that bad. Regardless of the good questions we may ask, Christ, heaven, 
Pleasing God should be the highest and only incentive we need. But unfortunately, what happens is a lot of people, it's, even Christians, it's not enough. We need something else to stir us up. People, you know, sometimes uh, people say, you know, people will just do what they needed to in the church if they just had extra incentive. No, they won't. You want to know why? Because it's a heart problem. They know what God has said. They just don't want to do it. Or people will sometimes say, we can't discipline, we can't rebuke the way God desires because it will cause problems in the church. It's just going to cause issues for us, and it's going to cause issues for everybody. It's not going to do anything. Well, maybe, you, maybe it'll cause problems, but it's not going to be because you're following God's instructions. It's not going to be because you know, you're doing the right thing. You're going to cause problems because you're not doing what God has said. And in fact... When people say we can't do this because it's going to cause more issues in the church. No, you can't do it because you don't have the heart to do it. God has been very clear on what he says about things like discipline. But it's going to cause issues. Maybe it will. But did God seem to stutter here? No, we know his will. Maybe someone says we can't achieve unity the way God desires because people are just so different. You know, everybody has a different kind of personality. So we need to try to change. No, 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 no. We can't achieve unity because of a serious heart problem. Not because people come to the word and they just have different perspectives on it. Guess what's supposed to happen? You come to the word and you forget your own wisdom. You don't lean on your own wisdom. You lean on this and this alone. That's how you achieve unity. And when there's not unity, it's because of a heart problem. It's because people are undedicated and unresolved to this. Does that define me? Not only that, but I think that there's definitely something to be said about the stubborn heart, the hard heart. Someone who refuses to change unless maybe certain subjective or self-made requirements are not met. We just read Mark chapter 11 verses 27 through 33 in the Bible class, so we won't go through that again. But there you have, again, just this notion of the, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the chief priests. They're coming to Jesus. They, all they're wanting to do is test him. All they're wanting to do is find something to put him to death. Let me ask you, after reading that passage this morning, did you come away thinking... They really didn't know the answer. No, they knew the answer. In fact, they conspired with one another and said, we can't give the answer because the people will stone us. And so what do they do? They knew the truth, but they didn't admit it because he wasn't acquiescing to their desires. They knew what they should have said. They knew the answer. They knew the reality. But because Jesus wasn't going to just you know, give them what they wanted, they said, oh, then I'm not going to play. Then I'm just not going to say anything. Jesus says, okay, then I'm not going to say nothing either. But, did they, but do you look at that and think that they couldn't have understood? To, to acknowledge and obey God's word only when it suits me is a grave heart problem. Because ultimately, we're not truly submitting to God. Sometimes in, in a situation like this, where maybe a congregation doesn't have elders, and maybe there's problems that arise, maybe there's division that comes up, Maybe there's certain judgments that haven't been considered, judgments that have been looked over. People get upset, and maybe there is issues, and there's infighting, and there's strife and division. And maybe sometimes people are tempted to say, well, people are just not submitting because we don't have elders. People would submit if we had elders. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. You want to know how I'm certain of that? Because they've already shown that they don't care about what God says. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 21, doesn't Paul say that we're supposed to submit to one another? But they're not even willing to do that. Why? They've already proven their disposition. God has spoken on the matter, and they're not willing to submit to him in this area. Why are they going to be willing to submit to him in this other area? If we're not willing to obey God in, in submitting to one another, why in the world do we think that they're going to submit to elders? And in fact, that leads to more issues. The day that there are elders, there's still that same problem. And you want to know how we fix it. It's dealing with the heart problem. 
people are not willing to submit to God. Are, is, does that describe me? Because unless this is fixed, we are just like the rich young ruler. We're just like the scribes and Pharisees and the chief priests there. We're just like the man who tries to justify himself. We are separated from God. And I will just say, the sermon almost ended here, with this, with, uh, at least in this point. But I thought of something, and I, and I felt like I had to share this because I think it's, it's too grave to not bring up. And the question is, are you someone who's tired of hearing God's word? Are you someone who's just bored with hearing it? The same way you've always heard it, maybe. You know, I've heard people say things like, well, you know, you can only hear this so many different ways before it just gets old. I mean, I've literally heard people say that to me. It, it just shocks me every time that they have the courage and the boldness to say this. But are you someone who is tired of hearing the same old gospel message the way that they've always heard it? Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 in verse 12. Look at what Peter says here about these words that they've heard. It says, uh, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. You see that notion of reminder all the way through that statement. But here Peter is making clear, you need to be reminded of things. In fact, an apostle, I need to be reminded of these things. We will never reach a point in our lives where we don't need the same gospel that saved Saul, the same gospel that saved Peter, the same gospel that saved all of the Gentiles throughout the New Testament. We need it daily. And the day that I think... Uh, you know, I've already been saved by it. I, I, I think I need something else. That's a very subtle heart problem. I don't want to get to that point ever. When we start saying things, I've heard people say things like, well, I, I, you know, we need to bring this person in because they just, they approach the Bible differently. Whenever somebody says in a book or an article or whenever somebody says in a, in a gospel sermon publicly that this is going to revolutionize the way you look at the Bible, you flee. Because there should never be a day where we think, you know what? I, I didn't actually know what the gospel message was. If we're a Christian and we've been studying our entire lives and we have given ourselves over to God, it should ne we should never be able to say, you know what? I never knew the truth. And that's ultimately what they're hinting at. You didn't really know the truth. I'm going to tell you the real gospel. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, as he writes to the Corinthians about how there is division and how people are trying to come to them in certain ways with the gospel, he says, But when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But I just, I really, I think I need to, I think I need someone to come in and just really, and really just change the way that we've heard these things before. It should never be changed. The day that it is, We've got something serious to talk about. Are we the person who loves to hear sound words? Or are we someone who, like Paul says, is just trying to listen to a superiority of speech? Man's wisdom. Is that me? In fact, I'll just tell you, be honest with you. As I was thinking about this, I'm going to dedicate an entire lesson to just this. Because I think this is more subtle than we realize. Because I've heard it. 
I can't tell you how many Christians, brethren, who say things like, I just need a little bit more, more than the gospel message. The fact that we don't even realize what we're saying, the fact that we don't even realize that that is what we're saying, that's a problem. All of this, these are signs of a heart problem. Does this define me, any one of these, more than just one? Then we have a heart problem. But where does that leave us? What now? And again, just very quickly, we're not going to go too much more in depth than this. That really is the last passage we're going to look at. But I will just say, if these things aren't fixed, the inevitable conclusion is it will kill the individual and it will infect everyone around them. It will infect the church. It will infect their family. That kind of personality, this kind of problem is contagious. And therefore, it must be dealt with. The trajectory of this, of this disease is death and further spreading. So where does that leave us? We're not just left to say, well, put our arms up. I guess I have to quit. I guess there's nothing else for me. No, Jesus says that there's a way. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 12, what, what do we have but that notion that he is that great physician? He is the one that has come to seek and save the lost. He is coming to heal those who have been sickened by sin. Do you have the cure? Do I have the cure? No, we don't. But guess who does? Jesus. And so what do we have to do when we realize we have this problem? Christian, we need to confess. We have to admit that I do have a problem. Isn't that usually the first step of any addiction, of any issue that someone has? You have to admit that you have the problem first. And you can't keep denying it. But that is, that is how we get going on the process of being healed. And when we do make that confession, when we do say, I need Christ, when we do say, I can't do this myself, when we do say, I need the cure, when we go to the great physician, when we go to Jesus and we hear his words, we need to listen. We can't just go and be like the rich young ruler and say, I, 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 okay, I've heard what he has to say, but I just can't do this. Don't hear the cure and let it slip from your fingers. Do what he says. Don't just be a hearer only, but have true faith. Don't just acknowledge these things and do them for a moment, but remain steadfast in them. And realize Rome wasn't built in a day. It's, sometimes these things take time, and that's why we have to be faithful. That's why we have to live steadfast. Keep to these things. And, and remain in that place. Remain in, in a steadfast zeal for God and his word and, and in Christian living. And, and I, you may be annoyed by the fact that I used all of these medical terms. I just thought it flowed really well. But when you think about that notion of repentance, doesn't that just seem like what, what we do when we're trying to remove the stuff from our lives that is the cause of the disease? We remove the things from our lives that are, you know, contaminated. We remove the things from our presence that could potentially infect us. But what have we done, Christians, when we have a heart problem? Yet again, we're al we've allowed things back in. And so what we have to do is take them, cut them out from the root. Pull them out of our lives and keep them out. That's what the Christian needs to do. And, and you might think, well, you're just talking about the Christian. What about the person who's not a Christian? Incidentally, I think all of those things are necessary. There's one thing that we didn't mention, though. We need to do exactly what we just said. You need to come to Jesus, hear his words, be faithful in them, make a confession on that belief, be, be, uh, have an, uh, uh, a penitent heart, have a repentant heart, get rid of everything he says you can't have in your life. But there's one more step. You need to actually get to the point where the sickness is removed. The sin, disease is purged from your body. 
You need to be cleansed. And how do we do that? By being washed in his blood. Being baptized, immersed into his death that we can rise in newness of life. So whether you're the Christian or the unbeliever, you've got to follow these steps. You've got to do what Christ has said. And let me just say, for everyone, once we've done this, don't dabble with or be careless around the germs, the sin that so easily stains. They are the very thing that made us sick in the first place and dying in the first place. So we are going to stay away from them completely when we are living truly faithfully to Christ. Are you subject to the invitation of Christ this morning by any means? Please, if you are, come forward, let your need be made known, and let us help you in that as we stand and as we sing.